Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Hello there, and welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast, the number two business management podcast in Slovakia. I didn't know where that was, so I looked it up on a map. It's in Central Europe, and apparently they're listening to this podcast in droves. So I love you, Slovakia. I'm going to give you some hard-hitting metrics this week. And we have none other than the great Alex Clayton on the podcast of Meritech Capital. And he is what I hope to become someday when it comes to talking about numbers online. He does these amazing S1 breakdowns for when companies go public and they release financial information for the first time. And he understands the nuances of SaaS models perhaps better than, I don't know, 99.999% of people out there. And I, I felt really lucky to have him on the pod. And he's inspired a lot of the writing that I've done online. And I look at what he produces as the gold standard for talking about SaaS. But before we do, I wanted to hit on a quick mail bag of burrito questions. And it's one that I've gotten a bunch of times in the last year, and I haven't hit on it yet. And I think I timed it right because my internet friend, OnlyCFO, OnlyCFO.io, that is OnlyCFO.io, has one of the hardest hitting software tech finance type newsletters in the game. And he just released a post on this today. And it's awesome. And the question is, where should customer success managers sit within the P&L? Either cost of goods sold, which hits your gross margin, or sales and marketing, which is within OpEx. So the question is, where should the customer success team show up as a cost? And there are two schools of thought as to where customer success managers should sit, either within cost of goods sold or within sales and marketing. And CFOs will die on a hill It's like, hey, what hill will I die on? It's probably this one as a CFO. To not put customer success managers in cost of goods sold because cost of goods sold impacts your gross margin. So it's revenue less cost of goods sold equals your gross margin for all the quants out there keeping track at home. And if you put it up there, it's a bunch of labor costs that is going to bring down your gross margin, which is going to make it look like your business is not as scalable and it doesn't have as much money left over to run the rest of the company and eventually show up in free cash flow at the end of the day, which is what everybody wants. And there are some good reasons why it may be in COG. So maybe as my friend only CFO says, they're basically filling a, a product gap early on, or maybe they're doing a support function and just using a sexier title, customer success manager, instead of customer support. I don't know, some, some people may like that one better. But there are also other reasons why they should go down in sales and marketing. And that's usually because they're responsible for expansion in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, it could be a hunter farmer model where they truly are kind of like salespeople, where somebody gets the initial logo on the sales team, then the customer success manager expands the customer by increasing usage, licenses, or adding net new products over time. The other reason why it may make sense is if they're developing relationships over time, and that's kind of in a biz dev standpoint, which is also in sales. And if they have a quota at the end of the day, this is kind of the biggest measuring stick for me, if you will. If they have a quota with dollars attached to it, I think they belong in sales and marketing. And like I said, that'll make your gross margin look better. So gross margin matters at the end of the day because it impacts the valuation multiple that you'll get. If you did a regression on 
the companies that are trading at more than 10x forward revenue, they have top quartile or top decile gross margin, which means that their financials look really good from an operational standpoint. They have scalability built in. And so just to quote my internet friend only CFO here, two takeaways. So gross margin is often inconsistent between companies. So you want to figure out if it's included or excluded, which is kind of a big reason why VCs push just to, hey, can everybody just put this thing up and cost of goods sold for us to make our lives easier? And then the second takeaway is that you want to take a look at the underlying activities of what these people are actually doing in order to decide where they belong. And he puts it nicely here. He said, if you had to fire the CSM department, then who would take over? If sales, then your CSM team should be in sales and marketing. And if support, then they should go to COGS. Couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Enjoy this pod with Alex Clayton. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. And I'm here with Alex Clayton of Meritech Capital. And I've got to say, sir, I feel like I'm speaking to a founding father or a Mount Rushmore figure of SaaS metrics. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. I've not been referred to in that way, but uh, I'm glad that you read some of our uh, content marketing at Meritech. So thank you. Glad to be here. I read all of it. And in fact, I read, I think it was your very first S1 breakdown, and I believe it was Coupa back in 2016, and you were at Spark Capital at the time. How'd you get this awesome idea to start doing these S1 breakdowns? Good question. So yeah, that seems very long ago now. So I was at Redpoint Ventures. While I was on the growth team, I worked a lot with Tomas Tungus, who was on the early stage team. And we would frequently go back and forth on blog post ideas that he had for his I think it's called post facto at the time. He might have renamed it at this point. And we would make some charts together. I would show him some things. And then when I was an analyst at Goldman from 2011 to 2013, I was in the TMT tech group in San Francisco in the investment banking, worked on quite a few IPOs. And so did a lot of working on S1s, a lot of drafting, a lot of building of metrics. And when I was at Redpoint, every time an S1 would come out internally, we would want a write-up to see what the business looked like, how well they were doing, how it compared to some of our private companies. I started doing that. And then when I left Redpoint to go to Spark, actually, Tomash said, hey, why don't you post some of those S1 reports that you do online? People would really like those. I enjoy them a lot. So I said, okay. So I tried it out, did it with Coupa, and have been doing it mostly ever since. I remember sharing them with all sorts of people that I would work with, and we would dork out about the metrics that you were using. And I feel like you actually familiarized a lot of people who were obsessed with SaaS, which, which numbers to even look at. So it kind of took on a life of its own. Yeah, I think that's right. And the interesting piece is an S1 is just an SEC document. It's not very consumable. And unless you've been in the weeds of those as a CEO, you just want the quick hits of how well a company is doing, scale, growth and how their imputed metrics can relate to yours. And because software businesses have similar go-to-market models, we can impute a lot of the, whether it's sales efficiency or growth or unit economics against each other. And um, yeah, people seem to really enjoy that. So me and, and my team have been doing that for quite some time now. And so I have a podcast and a newsletter, and a lot of it's to get smarter and to share what I'm learning with people. But there is, I mean, a selfish element to it where I get to write or talk myself into rooms that I probably wouldn't have gotten into before. I mean, I get, I get to talk to you now, which is neat. Have you had any, had any cool experiences of like people reaching out or replying to your emails? Yeah, it's been uh, all over the map, I would say. But the, the coolest part is when we go to meet a new company, typically they know about Meritech because of the companies we invested in. And now a lot of companies know Meritech because of the content 
that we put out and this benchmarking app for public software comps that we host on our website that we spend a lot of time building. So I've certainly met a lot of people that I would not have. There was an investment, I even, that the CEO essentially told me at the end that the reason that they decided to take Meritech's capital was because of the content that we put out. So wow. if that works out once, that's sort of good enough for us to do all the work on it. So I did want to take the opportunity just to nerd out with you on some metrics. Yeah. And so to kick off one of these, my, my favorite metric of all time is ARR per employee. And you've written pretty extensively yeah. about this metric. Can you speak to why you think it's a useful one? And do you have any rules of thumb for people out there of what good looks like? Great question. This is a, a way to just measure the overall efficiency of a business. It's hard to compare this at a, at a very nuanced way across companies, just given every business has a different market structure. But at the end of the day, this metric, you can't hide. It's very easy to calculate. You just take a company's total ARR and you divide it by the amount of employees you have. We see early stage companies, say 10, 20, 30, 40 million of revenue or ARR. They're probably anywhere from between the 50 to 100K ARR per FTE. As you grow, that number tends to grow up over time. And as companies gain a lot more operating leverage, the best in class companies can get to three or 400,000 or even more ARR per FTE. So it's something that we track and we push uh, our portfolio companies to track it over time. We want to see that number growing because it echoes the inherent market structure or the inherent operating leverage that you're seeing in a business. And so it's a very important metric. It's very easy to calculate and you can't hide from it because it is just, you're kind of your top and bottom line. It's almost like a free cash flow margin or a burn rate. I guess maybe a derivative of that. Do you ever look at gross profit per employee? I guess maybe a business yeah. may have a, a different business model that would, would you'd want to look at the leverage yeah. there. We also look at OPEX per employee as well. And then the implied margin. If you take the implied margin on ARR per FTE and OPEX per FTE, you have the implied you know, sort of contribution margin per FTE. I will say we've run a lot of analysis on this and a lot of regressions. While it's important to look at it on a per company basis, it tends to not be highly correlated with valuation multiple, at least the margin spread on that. And so it's very important to see the growth over time, but we've not seen the actual margin be, be associated or correlated with a revenue multiple, but the ARR per FTE is correlated to the revenue multiple. I've had people push back on me and say, you know, CJ, sometimes a company may be able to game this with contractors. I think an example would be Expensify. They're doing like 1.2 million per employee, which is incredible. But rumor would have it that they do rely on some contractors that may not be picked up in that number. Do you think that sometimes that can be gamed? I do. And in their case, it most certainly is. It's also a business that is subscale and has negative year over year growth. And so I think irrespective of what your ARR per FTE is, if your top line is performing in that way, that you're not going to garner a very strong multiple, unfortunately. So it can be. But yeah, they are a massive outlier due to the amount of contractors that they're using. Most companies don't do that. Yeah. It reminds me of what you said about gross profit and the leverage there. I had an investor look at the operating plan that I put forth, and he started to do this back of the envelope math. And what he was doing is he was adding my R&D plus my G&A. And he was saying, does your gross profit cover that? And he said, now I'm looking at it like your burn multiple is really just to fund the sales and marketing portion of the org. I don't know if you've ever looked at a heuristic like that before when you take a look at a P&O or an operating plan. Yeah, no, it's a good point. We have. We've looked at a few different things. We've also, I mean, we've also looked at sort of profit per share as Ooh. another metric for public companies, which, which is interesting. Those, what I would say, and we actually, with our, we have uh, our BizOps partner, 
Dan Knight, me and him have run some regressions. I think we did, it cost us a lot of money in Snowflake, but we ran a few billion regressions against the 25 million data points we have in our database. We ran regressions against every single possible combination. It was many, many billions. And those tend to be important to look at, but they're second derivative, meaning that your overall EBIT margin or your operating leverage, your ARR per FTE or your sales efficiency tended to impact correlation to multiple more than say, looking at something like that or like an OPEX sort of magic number or a profit per share. So those are all fun derivatives, but we're all trying to triangulate around the, the same thing. At the end of the day, do you have a business that you can grow 25, 30% at scale with strong free cash flow margins in a big market? If the answer to that is yes, the rest of those metrics tend not to matter so much. <laughs> I love it. That's the juice that people come to the pod for. That was excellent. So an, another metric that gets a lot of love is average contract value or ACV. Yeah. And now over time, I've kind of come to think of this as less of a useful metric in and of itself, because I think a lot of companies have built massive businesses on small deal sizes. So Cloudflare and Bill.com are two that come to mind. How do you think about ACV when you're sizing up a company? Like, Is it really enterprise or bust? It's a very complex answer because I tend to agree with you. The actual ACV, how much you charge your average customer annual contract value, does not matter to long-term value creation. What does matter is the following. Is your market big enough? If you sell a 3,000 ACV product, you could have enough customers over time to be doing hundreds of millions, if not billions of revenue. That's probably the most important factor. Secondly, are the unit economics associated with your ACV strong? Do you have high net dollar retention? Do you have high gross margin? Or are you in the 50s? Or are you in the 80s? What does the net retention on your customer base look like? How much does it cost you to acquire one of these customers? If all of those metrics tend to line up, the actual number, your ACV, does not matter in terms of value creation. When I started in this industry over 10 years ago, I remember one of my colleagues saying, you can't make money with SaaS businesses that have small ACVs. It just, the math doesn't work. And when I started, that's what I actually thought. And we were investors in Zendesk, which had small ACVs. They ended up going public when they crossed 100 million of ARR. They went on to be a very successful business and were acquired by Hellman and Friedman for, I think, over $10 billion. And that's a business that grew on one, two, 3,000 ACVs for a very long period of time. They did have some larger enterprise contracts, but the ACV itself isn't as important. There's one other important thing to note. Public companies do not disclose the spectrum or distribution of their ACVs. You get some insight into it where a company will say, X percent of our revenue comes from customers over $100,000 in ARR, or our top 10 customers contributed X percent of our total revenue in a given year. Those customers tend to be massively profitable from a gross margin perspective for a lot of businesses. And so without knowing all of that, it's also with the data that we're looking at, we're just looking at the average taking the company's revenue run rate over their total ending customer figure. We don't know the true distribution, which is an important element to look at when you're doing that analysis. Yeah. And I had done a post recently where I looked at what metrics public companies disclose versus guide to. And I've actually noticed a bunch of companies have stopped reporting their ending customer number and they only report the total number of customers over 100K. And it just makes it really hard to do the math yeah. of what that distribution is. Yeah, basically what they're saying to the market is what they're trying to tell Wall Street as well as the sell side is 
the low end of our customers, while they feed into this 100K plus customer number, they don't really matter for our business. And so you shouldn't pay attention to it. So particularly in this market too, think about it. There's been an unbelievable amount of churn across a lot of lower end customers across many public software businesses and private too. So you might not want to disclose a declining customer count if you don't have to with SEC rules. So I can see companies moving more towards, hey, if eight, if seventy eight of eighty percent of our revenue comes from customers over hundred k, that number is growing. Below hundred k might not be growing as fast. Why disclose it? Alex, I got to ask you another trend that I picked up on is I remember actually GitLab was the first one I remember to do this, but I think they had this quarter where they had like 152% net dollar retention. And then it went down to like 136, which is still stellar, but people panicked because they saw it going down and they said, hell with this. We're only going to tell you if it's above or below 130% from now on. And then most recently, I think Datadog and CrowdStrike within the last 12 months, they just said, we're going to tell you if it's above or below our benchmark of 120%. Yes. So GitLab decided to disclose their net dollar retention. Datadog, from when they first went public, said it's above X number. They never actually disclosed what the number is. Because oh. think about renewals from large or small customers, depending on the way that you can, the way that number is calculated, it can drop quarter to quarter. So Datadog said, you know what? As long as our NDR is above, a certain threshold, which the market deems to be best in class, and we think we can have it there, we are just going to say every quarter it's above XYZ number, instead of saying it's 146, 132, or 138, et cetera. The other interesting point is this. I got an email from someone the other day, a portfolio company saying, I cannot figure out Snowflake's net dollar retention. It doesn't make any sense. It's 140 or it's 138. I can't remember the exact number, but it was the net retention was higher than the revenue growth rate. And it was like, oh, it's 138%, but the company's only growing revenue by 32%. How is that right. possible? Well, if you go into their filing, you could say that Snowflake only discloses net dollar retention for customers above, I believe, 500,000 in annual revenue. So the numbers don't tie out very simply. So we, we've looked at net dollar retention across public companies. And I think there's something like, 30 or 40 different nuanced definitions of net dollar retention across public software companies. So we don't have perfect data or perfect insight into it. There's a lot of definitional disparity across public software companies. And so we do the best we can with tracking it, but it's very important to look at the definitions. Yeah. And you can find it in the footnotes that some of them will be pretty funky. I think there's some companies out there, like they won't even count an account as a customer if it's under like 5k in air yeah box box does start, that for example and i think asana is another one that does that yeah. and you and then you start to say oh well there must be a huge tail though of customers that are below that exactly something i wanted to ask you about was the relationship between ndr and cac payback period those are kind of two of my favorite um yeah. formulas and You've had this unique way of talking about the relationship between the two. In one of your really old posts, I'll quote it. You said, if a business consistently has annualized net dollar retention over 140% each quarter, it could be a good idea to spend more on customer acquisition, even if the paybacks are 18 plus months. Can you break down the thinking there? Yeah. So if you think about the value of a software business, firstly, it's the net present value of future cash flows. So let's think about those future cash flows and what's comprised there. If you have a business that's had 140% net dollar retention per year, and that's consistent, or say between 130 and 140, that means your base is growing 30 to 40% a year. 
every single dollar that you acquire over time that you continue to acquire will grow and compound over time. And let's say your gross margin is relatively stable at 80% or for, for this example. And software companies incur the cost to acquire a business upfront. So we spend a lot of money mm -hmm. to acquire them. The cost to upsell them or for them to expand over time is significantly less. And our gross margin is relatively stable. So what does that mean from a unit economic perspective? It means that that base of revenue is going to become extremely profitable over time. There was a few public software companies that disclosed this. Anaplan was one, Confluent was another, and I think there was one or other two that disclosed something called a contribution profit on a customer cohort basis. And it essentially showed that first year was dramatically negative. Year two, they made a little bit of money. Year three, they made a lot of money, and that started to compound over time. So if the software company, if the net present value of a software business, if the present value of a software business is the net present value of future cash flows, acquiring cohorts of customers that will generate a lot of free cash flow in the future, if you execute, you will increase the present value of the company. And because most of the costs go into acquiring that customer up front, if you have a stable NDR rate of 130 or 140%, you should be piling into customer acquisition because your number one KPI should be how many logos can I acquire? Most companies operate in large competitive markets, but software tends to be sticky. And again, back to that premise of your present value is the future is the net present value of future cash flows. You want as many logos that you can grab today from your competitors because you know three, four, five, seven years in the future, they're going to be very profitable and that's going to increase value to your shareholders. And so that's why we suggest to companies, if they're in a big market and it's a land grab scenario, if they have very high NDR, I'm fine as a board member saying, let's push on customer acquisition because we know that that's going to create value for shareholders down the road. And there's a lot of nuance, obviously, that goes into that, but that's generally my guiding principle. I would say in the other token, if you're a business that has 100% NDR, so essentially flat year over year. You might be a heavily SMB-oriented business. Your gross dollar retention might be much lower. So you might lose a lot of customers when they come in. You have a smaller amount that stay, and so you hover around 100%. You probably need to be much more careful on customer acquisition because you do not have that cheaper expansion, cheaper to acquire contribution profit that's happening in the base over time. So there's a lot of nuance to it. You can debate the inputs to all of this, but the premise is the same to me. If you have high NDR and stable gross logo retention and gross dollar retention in a big market that's a land grab, you should be piling in to customer acquisition, assuming you don't burn enough money to put yourself out of business or something. But I suggest companies really push that up over time. If they can hold those unit economics stable, it will increase shareholder value. And you've gone back to portfolio companies before then and said, hey, I think you're leaving money on the table? Yeah, I do. Because it's sort of, what are the variables you can play with? How much does it cost to acquire a customer? How much cash do we have? Which is, mm. how fast are we growing? What is our net dollar retention? What is our gross logo retention? Gross dollar retention? And how do we compound? And what is the cost to serve our customer base over time? This is very hard analysis to do. A lot of it's theoretical because figuring out the allocations, you're, you're a CFO. I'm sure this is probably giving you a heartache just kind of thinking about how to run this analysis. 
figuring out the contribution margin or profit on a cohort of customers in a given year over time and tracking that is no easy allocation exercise. And there's a lot of assumptions that you have to make. But if you can get really specific on it, I personally believe contribution profit per cohort is one of the most important metrics a software company can measure because it goes back to that same point. It gives you the precision on how much money you can spend on new logos because you know what you're going to get in return and we know how software companies are valued and you know how much cash you have that you can spend. I love that you pointed out how much cash can you have because I was I was going to potentially push back on you there and say, well, what happens if somebody says, oh, you know, we have an LTV to CAC of like 17 or something. It's like, but you're going to spend yourself into the ground and like, do you even know if the company is going to be around in five years? Sometimes I have yeah. to wrap my head around that. Like, do we actually have the bankroll to fund this? Exactly. It all comes down to how much cash you have, right, as well. I mean, that's sort of one of the most important inputs because as we know, the cost to acquire a customer happens up front. And there is a payback, a gross margin adjusted payback period that has to happen on the back end. The other thing you mentioned too on LTV to CAC, I personally don't believe that LTV or LTV to CAC ratio is a very valuable metric for many software companies. It's a second derivative metric from some of the other ones we discussed because LTV can be gamed because if a business has net negative churn or NDR above 100%, your LTV is theoretically infinite, which is not the case. Moreover, a lot of businesses don't have very long operating histories. And so making assumptions on LTV is also very challenging. So I think that is actually a scary metric that companies can be a little bit clouded by and drive themselves into a wall or some problems down the road by saying, oh, well, LTV CAC looks good. We'll keep spending money against this LTV to CAC ratio. It might not actually be as good as you think. So I think LTV is a valuable metric for software businesses that have less than 100% NDR because LTV is then Mm. more clearly defined or businesses with very long operating histories. We're talking 10 plus years where you can accurately predict what the LTV will be of a customer or a cohort, say a private equity style company or a business that's been around for a long period of time. Other than that, I think LTV to CAC is a very, it's a vanity second derivative metric of some of the other things we talked about, such as NDR or your sales efficiency or your contribution profit per cohort, things like that. And look, like we have an operator talking to a VC. And from my perspective, LTV to CAC is like the most compound of compound metrics where like, if I don't like what it looks like, I don't have one person in the business that I can point to and be like, hey, you own this. There are about 17 levers in that. So I see some value in it. Like you were saying, like if it's a longer term outlook and it has a lot of history, that can help for LTV to CAC in that sense can help for like a binary, like, is this a good investment decision? But from running a business day to day, I think that people put way too much weight behind that metric. Yeah, I I would agree. If you're a prosumer company, like I said, if you have NDR that's less than 100, say 50, 60, 70, 80%, which by the way, that's what LTV was started as a metric for a lot of consumer companies that did not have net, net dollar retention, a software metric. It was not really ascribed to consumer companies, but a lot of consumer companies started adopting this sort of whatever you want to call it, NDR for a consumer company or LTV. It's really your LTV, implied LTV over time. It started in the consumer world and then it was applied to software companies. I think it's only relevant for 
premium or prosumer software companies that have NDR less than 100%. Because you actually have a defined LTV, if it's over 100%, the calculation is theoretical in nature. So I personally don't guide companies to use theoretical metrics to make business decisions that could have large impacts on the fate of the company. So for most businesses, I don't think it's very relevant, but you can track it. It's just a second derivative of what we discussed before. I always joke, I pray for the confidence of a seed stage founder with one year of selling history who claims an LTV to CAC of eight. For sure. So you also have done a lot of metrics on the lead up to going public. So that's a big milestone for companies. It does feel like the goalposts have shifted over time in terms of how much revenue you should have yep. when you go public. Before, I feel like maybe like went back when Twilio went public, maybe it was like 100 million in run rate revenue was the minimum. Is that larger now? Oh, significantly larger. When I started in this business, or when I was, start, when I was doing IPOs at Goldman, we would work on an IPO. I'd spend nine months of my life working on a transaction with the entire management team, and we'd raise $100 million in an IPO. And we did all wow. of that. And the business would be worth $800 million or $600 million, and it was a massive success. And they were massive successes at the time, but the goalposts have changed dramatically. Just like everything associated with the software market has grown over time, the market TAM has grown, the surface area of software across everyone's personal and business lives continues to grow dramatically. The amount of software apps, market sizes are bigger than everyone thought. And there's a lot of venture funding that have come in, both late stage venture growth as well as private equity. Put simply, companies are staying private longer for many reasons, because there's more funding available. Previously, 10, 15 years ago, you sort of had to go public because there was no way else you could fund your business. There were no investors to write you $100 million checks in the private markets for growth capital. It just did not exist. And you know, Meritech was actually the first dedicated late-stage venture firm 23 years ago. Now, how many are there? We couldn't even name them all in this podcast today because there's so many. You probably know that from being a CFO of a, of a high-growth private company. And so there are a lot of reasons the goalposts have changed. Now they've really changed a lot. And my personal belief is, and from speaking with whether it's bankers or public market investors... To even get interest in an offering, you have to be big, you have to be free cash flow positive or making money, or you have to be growing incredibly quickly with a very unique story. So how does that instantiate itself? Look at Clavio, the last software company to go public. They're still below issue price, by the way. This is a business that's seven to 800 million of ARR, growing 50% with very strong gap margins. We're not talking non-gap margins or free cash flow. They are gap profitable, growing very quickly in, in an SMB in a massive market, and they have a very efficient model. So if the goalposts are that, there are very few companies in the private markets that are anywhere close to that. And one fear I have is that the public markets can consume about 20 to 30 IPOs a year. And we now have hundreds of software companies in the private markets that are a few hundred million of ARR. What's going to happen to all of those? They can't all go public at the same time. There's frankly just not enough interest. And so I think there's going to be a huge weeding out process for those businesses, for the ones that can get public, at least in today's market regime, which is of course always subject to change. You have to be big, you have to be growing fast, and you generally have to be free cash flow positive. So 10 years ago, Companies thought if we get to 100 million, 
and a billion dollar valuation, we've won. It's over. Now companies are saying, I want to get to a billion of revenue and a 10 or $20 billion valuation. There's 45 companies in the public markets that are worth over $10 billion. And that number even continues to grow over time. And so those are the type of businesses and those are the goalposts that companies are after today versus just getting to 100 million of ARR. What do you think the new 100 million is if you had to? I know I'm asking you something that you're saying may not be the case, but just... Yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot of different opinions on this. My personal perspective is in today's market, again, which could change over time, I think you at least have to be at or looking forward in the next 12 months to 500 million of revenue. And to piggyback on something you said earlier, Alex, about going public after you raise a certain amount and doing it sooner, like right now we think that Databricks messing around and actually running out of letters in the alphabet is like normal. But if you look back in history, I pulled a list. So after Series A, Amazon, Apple, and Alibaba went public. After Series B, Atlassian, OpenTable, Zynga went public. After Series C, Dropbox, Shopify, Spotify went public. After Series D, ServiceNow, Zendesk, and Zscaler went public. So it, it, post-Series D is not normal, historically speaking, if you elongate the timeline. That is correct. Yes. Like I said, I was working on IPOs that were you know, $100 million in size not that long yeah. ago. I mean, this was 12 years ago. And now companies are raising, or at least in 2021, they're raising $100 or $200 million Series A's or Series B's. I mean, I just saw a company... Mistral AI just raised, I think, a three or $400 million Series A. So the amount of capital available in the private markets is, even with the downturn over the past 18, 20 months, is larger than it ever has been in history. And as a consequence, would you say that founding teams are showing up to IPO with less equity than they used to historically? I think, yes, that's generally true. It's a function, yeah, obviously dilution happens to all shareholders. It's a function of how much capital you've generally raised, among other things, how much you've maybe sold on the way to IPO. We did an analysis called Durable Growth. And the reality is this, companies, even ServiceNow, which was diluting 7% a year, with compounding revenue growth and operating leverage, you make up in spades for the net effect of dilution and or change in multiple over time. So that's the thing that I think has been tougher the past couple of years when you've had 60, 70, 80, 90% multiple compression. The amount of revenue growth you need and to combat multiple compression and dilution is in many times unattainable for private companies. And so dilution has crept up and it's a compounding factor against you over time. We did do some analysis. And so if you're a founder CEO, According to all of our data, you own on average 17% on a pre-offering basis at time of IPO. If you're not a founder, you own about 5.5%. So obviously a huge spread there, whether you're a founder or not. If the founder is no longer the CEO, they tend to still be on the board or, or maybe not involved in the business. The new hired CEO obviously doesn't get as much founder share. So I think we will see that likely happen over the next few years, just given a lot of companies will need to raise more capital than they thought they would, given multiple compression and timelines to IPO. If I remember correctly, you also crunched the numbers on the average age of a CEO when, when they go public. 
Do you remember what the findings in that were? Yeah. If you were a founder, you IPO generally when you're about 45 years old. If you're a non-founder, I think it was 51 or 52. And if it takes 10 years to get public, you're usually starting a company when you're in your early 30s, on average. A lot of disparity in there, though. So you're saying, you're saying I still have time then? You still have time. Yes, you still have a lot of time. I do want to call that out, though, because I do, I, do, <laughs> I do feel like there is this Silicon Valley myth, though, of everybody who goes public being the same age as Mark Zuckerberg. But you're saying it's mid-40s to early 50s, usually. For software companies, yeah. I would say consumer companies could be different. But yes, you're, you're generally in your 40s or 50s. That's the data that all the data that we've pulled. There are some outliers to that too. And this question gets some controversial responses sometimes and people feel strongly either way. Do you think that performance in the long term is better for founder CEOs or for professional CEOs? I think it's one of those correlation or causation questions where the short answer is, I don't know. And I don't know if that answer is knowable. And the reason is this, is the company successful? And this is sort of just taking a 30,000 foot perspective. Is a company successful because they had a great founder or was it the right market timing, the right market structure, the right product, and they were just a good founder? Or were they a great founder and they figured out when to start the company during those other periods I described? There are so many factors that go into building a successful public enduring company over time, whether it's the size of the market, the market timing, what happens to your competitors, how much funding you had or didn't have, your ability to execute takes a little bit of luck. There are thousands of, of small decisions that go into that. But I will say, if you are a, we tend to see this in the private markets, our strongest performing companies, they have great founders. And so if I had to guess and I had to do the analysis, I would say that I would suspect that more value creation would accrue to founder CEOs over time than hired CEOs. But I haven't, I haven't done all the math on that. That's just my assumption. I actually tried to do it for a post that I did. And then I found everybody kind of jumped on my back and said that there's so much survivorship bias here because you're not seeing the other 99% of companies that were led by founders that didn't make it to IPO. So of course, like these ones are going to look good. Yeah. I mean, I think about that. We track about 100 public SaaS companies in the sort of our Meritech Capital Index, I think that's about two to two and a half trillion dollars of market cap currently. And that's a hundred names. And I just saw an article today that said there's 3,200 companies that have gone bankrupt this year or have shut down in 2023 due to, you know, whether product market fit, et cetera. So the funnel of companies that you start with is tens and tens of thousands but only very, very few make it. So I couldn't agree with you more. The survivorship bias is massive because if you're a public company, it means that you really are in fact a great company because you were able to get public. So I think it's tough when private companies try to compare themselves against public businesses because of that fact that you described. So few will actually make it to the public markets for a variety of reasons. Well said. What I did find in the analysis though, which I found fascinating is that the Founder-led CEOs had higher growth rates on average for their companies than professional CEOs, but the professional CEOs had better rules of 40, meaning that they were running a more balanced business. And I kind of stepped back from that and I said, well, it kind of makes sense that founders would be kind of like, damn the torpedoes. This is kind of what has 
got me here of taking risks. Yep. Whereas a professional CEO would want to probably run a more efficient ship. Yeah, I would also take a look. I'd be curious what that analysis would show. How many of those companies had private equity ownership as well? Because a lot of the PE-backed companies that have gone public, many of them have professional CEOs because those private equity firms have acquired those businesses, cashed out the founders or CEOs, replaced them with operating CEOs, then taken them public. That's the inside baseball. There we go. Okay. One more question before we get to the lightning round here. So what's your latest thinking on valuation multiples? Give it to us. Because if you look at the NTM revenue multiples, it feels like anything over 10x is kind of banana land. I mean, has your thinking changed at all around that? No, the best public companies today are trading 15, 20 times forward revenue, forward consensus revenue. Their internal planners are probably higher, and so those multiples are, are probably a bit inflated, right? But I think it's in today's market, it is, I will go so far as to say it's irresponsible to build a financial plan or a fundraising plan, assuming that you'll be worth more than 10 times forward revenue at any given point today. Things could change. Two or three years ago, you could say it was easily that you'd be worth 30 or 40 times because that's what the market would bear. And now it's completely changed. With that said, I do not believe that any time in the short to medium term, at least with where inflation's at, that we will be in a monetary policies market structure that would enable ZERP or you know zero interest rate policy again. Therefore, multiples likely have some ceiling to them. So me being an investor, you being a CFO, I would say, how can we assume that we're going to be worth more than 10 times? We better be pretty dang special if we're making that assumption. That checks out with historical multiples too, that 10 is a premium. People forget that. Like if yeah. you look over the last 30 years, 90 was the aberration. Yeah, I know. And so everyone should have known that you know companies trading at 50, 60, 70 times for many months in a row was not likely sustainable. We certainly did not think it was sustainable, but no one can predict the future. But I think what you can predict is building a great business. And it just comes back to, if you have a great business in a great market structure and you can compound growth over a long period of time, it doesn't matter what your multiple is. It doesn't matter really even how fast you grow. But the fact that you compound growth over a long period of time is the single most important factor in long-term value creation and shareholder value. And that is still true to today. I think that's what Ben Franklin said, that compound interest was the ninth wonder of the world. Yeah, we did an analysis. We looked at every single company and we tried to figure out if the companies that had the highest MOM or multiple of money in the public markets, was it because of revenue growth? Was it because of the actual revenue growth rate? And the highest correlation was years public. And so, of <laughs> course, there's of course there's a lot of survivorship bias in that because if you can't grow for a long period of time, your growth rate will slow and you'll get sold and you won't be a public company anymore. Or your growth rate will slow and you'll decide to sell and you won't be a public company anymore. Or you'll be a really great company and someone will buy you for a big price and then you're no longer public. But if you stay public and keep growing, that is the largest determining factor of your multiple of money as a public software company. Years public. That's wild. Lesson there is just don't die. <laughs> yes. So Alex, I want to take you into what we call our long ass lightning round. And so okay. I always ask guests, can you give us an example of one thing you've screwed up on the job? And it could be at any job you've ever had. 
Uh, yeah, well, I think I've screwed up a lot of things. One uh, funny one was when I was an associate at Redpoint, I spent a lot of time researching this company that I thought was really interesting. I crafted this long message to send out to the CEO. I sent it to the CEO, and it turns out that it was already a portfolio company <laughs> and from our early stage fund. And uh, the CEO then called the early stage partner because he thought he wasn't sure if like we were trying to dupe him or if there was like a ruse happening or like that like the growth fund was trying to buy out the early fund's shares. And so it was really embarrassing. And so um, it made me always realize I better stay more in sync with our early stage fund because I can't do that again. Classic wrong number scenario. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack. Sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Okay, next one here. Can you tell me what your VC tool stack looks like? So you invest in software, but what software do you use to get the job done? Yeah, so we've got a quite a bit of tools and tricks. Obviously, I'll bifurcate my day job between some of the BizOps stuff that we do and sort of the, the SaaS data, but heavy user of, of CRM, obviously Affinity, Excel. I use text expanders for, you know, kind of frequently used text to, to, to send more efficient emails. I think a big part of my job is actually you know, sending emails and reviewing things. That's super important. A lot of the G Suite tooling, whether, you know, G Docs, Google Drive, et cetera, on Google Sheets, Excel, I would say it's not overly innovative on that front. With that said, we are investing in how AI technology and some of these, whether open source or closed source LMs can make us better and more efficient at Meritech. More to come on that, but we're spending some time internally to make us better at and quicker at understanding businesses. But on the infrastructure side, we have Snowflake, we have Sigma, we have Looker, we use Trade.io for integrations, we use ConvertKit for marketing automation, we use Framer mm. for our website design, comp building, so variety of tools there. That's awesome. I'm a huge Sigma user myself, big fan. Oh, cool. Alex, if you could tell your younger self something knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? I would say, don't lose sight of market structure. I think that's one of the toughest things to figure out over a period of time as being an investor. My previous boss had a very good, simple question. He would ask me about an investment opportunity. He said, is this a toaster? And when he first asked me that, I wasn't really sure what he meant, but it, it was actually quite simple. Is this a commodity product or not? Is this a market or a market structure where there's a lot of money in toasters? Everybody needs one. They're all over. You can buy them online, you can buy them at Walmart or Target or anywhere, but there's not a lot of margin in them and there's not a lot of competitive differentiation. So can you pick a market where not only can there be a massive market leader over time, but is it a market where it's a best of breed market for the long term or does it turn into a toaster? And I think earlier on in my career, in anyone's career, you think about a company in a siloed fashion, you think about their numbers, the team, the feedback you get from customers. But I think you need to take a bigger picture view around 
is this a market structure that can produce a large business over time? Not just because the TAM is big or small, but because is it something that's going to commoditize? Is it become, going to become a telco over time? Or is it going to be, put simply, a toaster? Where I don't know the brand of the toaster I have. It seems to work. I'm sure yours does too, but nobody really cares, even though there's a lot of toaster revenue out there. My wife will tell you that our toaster is proudly a smeg. Apparently, it's a designer toaster. Okay, but um, well, you, there you go. You, hey, uh, maybe, maybe maybe they're reinventing the market structure of the toaster market. Yeah, maybe that's what it really is. You want to be a smeg. But there was there was a investor who I believe said over time everything becomes a toaster. And then there was another investor who had said instead of it's turtles all the way down, it's it's toasters all the way down. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. At the same token, you look at businesses like ADP, which is, have been compounding for 75 years. And people probably thought that was a commodity market for many, many years. But you know, for double our lifespan, they've been continuing to make a ton of money and they're still growing. So it's really fascinating to think about things like that. But um, our job is to do the best we can with the information we have today and you know, pray for you know, good exits over time. Last question here. So where can people find you if they want more Alex Clayton? Well, MeritechCapital.com. You can check out our insights and benchmarking section of our website. We've got a lot of information on there. And feel free to reach out if, if anyone has any questions. And you know, CJ, thank you, for, um, thank you for having me on today. Talk through all these things. This is the most fun I've had in a while with a, with a fellow metrics nerd. So I, I so appreciate your time, cool. Alex. Cool. Thank you, CJ. Appreciate it. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.